Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Literally, the cafeteria is across the hallway from where the Merlin engines for the Falcon 9 are being made. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Kodiak Shack podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Vader, and we've got Bender here. Uh, and today we're talking with Cowboy, which uh, Bender and I met Cowboy a long time ago, and uh, he's moved on from flying jets, uh, and now he's working at uh, Starlink at uh, SpaceX, I guess, technically, right? And uh, so he was mm -hmm. an F-16 pilot. Uh, he was at Osan, and then I believe he went to Shaw. And then after mm -hmm. that, he uh, transitioned out of the military and has now been uh, working on some really cool projects over at Facebook previously, and then now at, uh, at SpaceX. So Cowboy, thanks for being here. Tell us about yourself. It's not a trap. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Not, not a trap. Yeah. You sure about that? <laughs> Yeah. Might be a trap. All right. All right. Um, yeah. So, uh, thanks for the intro. Um, you got, you got everything right there. Uh, pretty much nailed it. Um, but I think that, I think kind of the overall theme here is like, I wanted to be an astronaut as long as I can remember. Like ever since I was a kid, my goal was like, get an engineering degree, like become a pilot somehow, uh, and then become an astronaut and like sort of figure it out along the way. Um, I think like by the time I was eight years old, I could like go to any airport and be like, that's a 737. And like, that's an A320 or whatever. Um, so like aviation's like been in my blood kind of like, like forever. Um, so I did my uh, undergrad and master's at Cornell University, did uh, in aerospace engineering. Um, and I wasn't sure if I wanted to like join the military at that point. I like heard about ROTC, didn't know if that's exactly what I wanted to do. Um, but I went over there and was like, hey, interested in being a pilot. Uh, what's the chance I could be a pilot kind of thing. And they're like, hey, you know, we actually have a pretty good acceptance rate. Uh, you, if you do really well, like you can become a pilot in the Air Force. Still wasn't sure about it, but then my dad was actually like, um, do you want to design planes for the rest of your life, or do you want to like fly planes? I was like, yeah, obviously I want to fly planes. Like that sounds awesome. And he's like, well, if you want to fly planes, you should fly the coolest, fastest kind of thing out there, which is obviously fighters, right? So maybe you should think about this military thing. Um, so I did, signed up for ROTC, uh, got a scholarship and did pretty well and ended up getting accepted to go to NCHIP. Um, went to Shepard, uh, did decently well at Shepard, got selected to fly the Martin Viper, uh, ended up going to Luke. Um, and Luke was an interesting story. Uh, my, my class was the first class to fly an all solo syllabus. So I actually did my doll ride in the F-16 solo because they had some issues with the D models. Nice. Um, and my class was actually the last 308 class to fly the Viper, so they shut down the 308 after I graduated. Um, now it's a 35 uh, B course. Um, went to Osan, was at Osan for a year and a half. Uh, awesome assignment, especially the brand new lieutenant, brand new wingman, the jet. Um, tons of buffoonery, tons of fun times there. Uh, and then I was there for a year and a half, went to Shaw, went to the Tigers. And um, shortly after showing up at Shaw, I actually had some medical issues. Um, was deniffed about three months after showing up or so. It was a huge bummer because the squadron actually went to Archer 
right after I right after I went to DF, which sucked because yeah. um, I would have liked to see some missiles. Um, and, but unfortunately, like continue to stay to NIF, um, was, was fighting some medical stuff for a while after the one year mark of staying to NIF, um, the air force was basically like, look, you're probably not going to fly again in the air force. Um, do you want to stay in and finish out the rest of your commitment, you know, post-pilot training? Um, and we'll like reclass you as like an engineer or something like that. Or do you want to start kind of going through like a separation proceeding at this point? And I was like, yeah, if I can't, if I can't fly in the air force, like I'd rather like continue to contribute on that side. Um, so it took almost a year to do all the paperwork involved with getting like a medical separation from the Air Force. Um, and in that time, I had a lot of time to think about like what I wanted to do next after I got out. Um, my, my wife had been actually been working as a UX designer for a number of years, uh, freelancing while we were at Osan. And then, uh, she was working at an insurance company when we were in Columbia. And so she would have loved to move to San Francisco. And I thought a career in tech would be kind of interesting for me. Like it's not aerospace engineering, but it's like some kind of engineering. Um, so I ended up uh, actually pursuing uh, data science. So kind of did some self-teaching along the way um, while I was to NIF and uh, ended up getting a job in San Francisco at a carpooling company called Scoop as a data scientist. Um, was at Scoop for about a year before... Uh, the you know 2020 and COVID happened and everybody stopped carpooling. Yeah. Uh, weird. So their revenue dropped off a cliff in you know March of 2020. Um, stuck around for another six or seven months, but eventually uh, moved on to, to Oculus, Facebook, um, what was called Facebook Reality Labs at the time, and now it's just called Meta. Um, and I joined a uh, computer vision team that was actually working on hand tracking and object tracking. And uh, there's cameras on the outside of the headset can kind of like see the world around you, can track your hands, uh, can track other objects. And I was a, a data scientist on that feature. Um, yeah, but ultimately, I like, wasn't super excited about the product. Like overall, um, had some like cultural issues uh, with the company. Uh, great company to work for, like in a lot of ways, but uh, just wasn't a great fit for me. Uh, so I ended up leaving uh, this summer and got a job at SpaceX working in uh, Starlink Special Programs as sort of a, a technical program manager kind of a role. Um, and just started there about three months ago. So that's where I'm at now. We here at the Kodiak Shack podcast would like to welcome our new sponsor, Adamus Cyber. Working with the military means there are some minimum cybersecurity requirements that are in every contract. Complying with these requirements can be painfully slow and really take your company's focus off your military customers and end users. Thankfully, the team at Adamus has simplified the process exclusively for small businesses working with the military. It should be expected that security requirements are going to be a part of working with the military, but they don't have to be difficult. Learn why prior guests on the podcast like Arun from Ops Lab or Brian from Rescon use Adamus to comply with the NIST 800-171, DFARS 7012, and CMMC cybersecurity requirements in their contracts. Check out their website at www.adamuscyber.com and tell them you heard about them from the Kodiak Shack podcast. Their website will be in the show notes. We appreciate all the companies that want to work with the military, and we understand working with the government isn't always the easiest thing, uh, but we appreciate companies like Adamus that make it just a little bit easier. Nice. Well, so a lot of things I got to bring up here. We're going to, we're going to rewind. So for everybody who doesn't know, um, 
Cowboy went to uh, Shepherd, which is called NJEPT, uh, which I'm not going to uh, even attempt the acronym, but effectively, uh, people go to NJEPT are normally the big brains. So guys like me, the cavemen in the fighter community, go to Columbus or uh, one of the other bases, and then normally the guys who are who are uh, get good grades and, and good academic guys uh, end up going to NJEPT. So that's good that you got to go there. And then uh, as being an Office fan, uh, the TV show, uh, how do you feel about uh, Andy Bernard be, having he actually- the Cornell? He actually, I think he came to, to, to Cornell and did like stand up. And somebody on the like events team or whatever at Cornell that like brought him there uh, gave him like a Cornell bear, like with a little mascot on it. And it, apparently it actually made it onto the show the next season. And like that bear was like sitting on his desk. Um, oh, yeah. I, I, I haven't like seen a lot of episodes of The Office. I'm not like a huge fan, but uh, that, is, that is the one thing that keeps getting brought up. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's definitely a thing because I've wa- I think I've watched the entire series like uh, four or five times. You know, nice. it's, a, it's a lot of TV watching, but yeah, it's yeah, uh, nice. It, they've almost become synonymous. That's why Cowboy went to Egypt. That's you? right. <laughs> yeah, he was he was reading books and uh, getting his masters yeah, while I was watching. The exactly. Office. Yeah. Well, great. So that's uh, so that was kind of your your background in it. And, not, and for the Kodiak Shack podcast, obviously, you know, we we talk about innovation and specifically for events. Uh, and you have a great perspective, and I want to get your input on this because we've talked about VR, we've talked about AR, we've talked about augment the augmented reality, but the uh, mixed reality. And so now when we're talking about uh, what you're the eye tracking, right? Or not the eye tracking, but tracking your hands and in, in mm-hmm. different objects like that mm-hmm. uh, from kind of a, a fighter pilot's perspective, because normally the person explaining the, the VR, the AR, the XR is not a pilot. They're just mm-hmm. a engineer, but you have a great insight in mm-hmm. where, where do you see that utility specifically for like VR training, AR training, XR training for the, the future pilots? Yeah. Um, I think there's, there's two big areas that I see it, uh, working really well. Um, for one thing, it's like, it's all about the reps, right? Like everything in pilot training comes down to like how many reps can you get? And with the, the flying syllabus that you have, you know, there's only so many times that you can get a jet, you know, the, the student and then an instructor to like go out there and like get a rep to go see something. But if you can give a dude a, a $200, $300 headset and stick him in a, in a, you know, dorm room and just have him repeat this, the, the, you know, the roll into the wire or whatever it is, like a hundred times in his dorm room, that is so much better than chair flying. Like we did this, we did the thing where we like had the poster of like all the switches and stuff on the yeah. wall. Right. And you're like, Okay, this is this is kind of dumb. Like, like I kind of get the flow of like, here's where the switch is going to be. But like, dude, if you throw on an eight like a VR headset and can be sitting in your dorm room, actually flipping switches in the cockpit and get a feel for like, this is where this switch is, is and like, this is how long it's going to take to get the engine to like, you know, whatever it is, twenty percent to like, you know, before you like add add fuel. This is this is how long you know, you know, JFIS Start Two is going to take. Um, and you just get the, it's, it's not just the, you know, left hand, right hand of it. It's all of it. It's the sound, it's the timing. Um, and, and then if, if the first time you actually go into the jet to do it for real, like you've done it a hundred, 200 times before, you know, you're, I completely agree. You're never going to replace the G's. You're never going to replace the feeling of like being in that BFM turn and like cranking your cranium over and like looking for the other dude, like, you're not going to be able to replicate that 100%. But if you can get 60, 70, 80% close to that by like, hey, I'm sitting in my chair 
And I'm, I'm like, that's where the dude is over there. And like, that's where I need to be looking. Um, it doesn't translate one-to-one to the jet, but the, no- the more reps you can get, the, the better it's going to be in, in the end game. Jets are expensive. I mean, the F-16 is like, what, 20K an hour or something like that, right? Like, yeah. like that's a lot of VR headsets. <laughs> yeah. Well, in, in the, I've told the story before, but I'll kind of, you know, as a anecdotal point, like, uh, so we were screwing with uh, some VR trainer at Holloman before I left. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I like threw that on and I was flying around in uh, DCS just as like a mm-hmm. demo. Mm-hmm. And I, I get airborne and I go to reach for the landing gear, which is my habit pattern, obviously. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, ooh, VR. I can't, I can't just grab the handle and drop mm-hmm. the gear or raise the mm-hmm. gear. So is that something that is you expect to be either with gloves or, or some sort of pass through that we're going to be able to do in the, the near future or currently? Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. Um, with, so with the Oculus headsets, um, the, uh, quest quest twos and the quest pros. So there, there are cameras on the outside of the headset that can track where your hands are in space. And so, um, it, it works decently well. Um, the, the tracking actually works quite well. What's, what's actually quite difficult right now is the, uh, developer interaction and being able to say like, hey, here's where this your hand is relative to a to a switch or to like an object in in the game or in the VR environment, and like when you're picking up a block, like understanding, hey, like I'm holding on this thing or I'm not, like I'm let it go. I, that's that's the part that I've actually seen the most trouble with. Of like, hey, if I if I reach over like to like raise the landing gear handle, getting the software to understand exactly where your hand is relative to the handle can be a little bit difficult but the the precision of like where your hands are is actually pretty damn good um i've seen demos of people playing like beat saber which is like i don't know if you've seen that but it's it's this game you've got like lightsabers and it's almost like guitar hero but you've got lightsabers and you're like hitting blocks like on a rhythm it's like one of those rhythm games and the you know you've got the normally you're using controllers to like hit these things and you're moving your hands pretty fast because you're it's like you know you're kind of all over the place. I've seen demos where you're like not even using the controllers, and the headset is just tracking your hands in three dimensional space, and you're like just as accurate as as using the controllers that have all the accelerometer and stuff built in. Like the tech is the tech is really good, um, and it's just kind of a matter of getting the last little bit in place of like understanding where your hand is in the virtual environment and doing the interaction piece. That's that's quite difficult. Well, and that's where, so the non-tech savvy guy, you know, I was a geography major because it was easy. <laughs> nice. uh, and so they're like, hey, figure out VR. And I, I don't <laughs> know what they're they're called. It's kind of the cone with the handle. You know, it's kind of got the circle on it where I call it an ice cream scoop, but you kind of aim it where you want and you squeeze oh, the trigger yeah, to yeah, like yeah. click on stuff. Yeah, um, the laser pointer, yeah. Exactly. And I was like, there has to be a better way, you know? And and now totally. it seems like the uh, that that is reality now this is totally maybe this question doesn't make sense uh but obviously in vr you kind of perceive it as like a three-dimensional space you're sitting in a cockpit i can see things are more near and there are thing the ground is much farther obviously but does a computer like understand it in the same way that i perceive it like my hand is next to the the gear handle versus next to the terrain just up and left of my hand like the computer knows those relationships yeah, so it's building like a three-dimensional space essentially um, in in the world, and like like the way that it actually works is um, 
there is a three-dimensional model that you're like essentially flying through. And the computer is doing a lot of really complex math to basically project that, like what you're seeing onto your two eyes, like in the correct distance so that it is what we call stereoscopic or like it looks three-dimensional to you. So it, it takes the three-dimensional view and then projects it onto two two-dimensional planes that are the right, like an eye length apart um, so that it looks three-dimensional to you. That's pretty cool. And it makes yeah. sense, you know, you have uh, fidelity, you know, you look at the something far away and you're like, ah, it's a little blurry, just like it should be. And then yep. you're close up on your instruments and you can read the dials and the numbers. So, I mean, it's, yeah. it is impressive. And I can, I can only imagine at the speed, how things are changing. Uh, it's only going to get better and better over the, over the coming years and decades. Yeah. Yeah, actually. So one of the cool things I got to do uh, when I was at Meta is they do a, um, like a demo day of like the research lab. And uh, I got to try out all of these cool headsets. Essentially what they did was they're like, um, we know that there's all these issues with VR headsets, right? Like the resolution isn't great. The field of view isn't great. The brightness might not necessarily be super great. The, the processing power on the headset isn't super great. And so what they did is they took all of these different problem areas and they made a headset, like a custom one-off headset. These things are like, you know, $20,000 a piece or whatever. And it was like an engineering prototype to solve that one particular problem. So like they, they, they're like, let's forget about, um, let's forget about spatial resolution. Let's just look at field of view and make the widest field of view headset possible. And literally what they did is they took like four lenses from a regular Oculus headset and like literally like super glued, to, super glued them together. <laughs> it's a little more complicated than that, obviously, but like yeah. essentially had, oh, you know, the like, wide field of view at night vision goggles, the like ones with the four barrels or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> it it kind of looked like that. And okay. uh, like a super wide headset. And then they throw you in the VR environment and you're like, oh, this is what we could get if we had this super wide field of view that, that went all the way out to like 160 degrees, you know, whatever. Um, they had another one where they like had a really narrow screen, like so it wasn't a super wide field of view, but the resolution was insane. like. Like 8K, this of like pixels, like this big or something ridiculous like that. And they actually had this slider in the in the game where you could simulate lower resolution headset. So it was like like Quest One, Quest Two, Quest Pro, which is the one that just came out. And then it was like this headset was like way up here. <laughs> and they literally had an eye chart in the corner that was like, here is what you know like a doctor's eye chart would look like if you had 8K vision. And I was like reading a book in VR, like with no eye strain, like it was so clear that like in that little window, like the field of view wasn't very big, but the resolution, I mean, practically looked like real life. It was, it was really impressive. So it'll, it'll get there. Um, we have the technology to be able to solve a lot of the problems with VR right now. The problem is just like the engineering constraints, like fitting all of these solutions onto a headset that's actually comfortable to wear. And then like power, uh, thermals, like these things are really hot. Um, and and just like the like compute power as well. Cause you gotta remember these are, a lot of these are mobile headsets, like they're not plugged into a desktop computer. And so it's essentially like a, a cut down iPhone that's running a lot of this processing power. And when you try to run like 8K per eye on like a super wide field of view, like that's, that's a difficult engineering problem to solve. Yeah. Well, and it's a great way, it's a great approach to solve the problem rather than saying like, solve this resolution is issue inside of the, the current constraints. 
It's just like solve the problem and then we will figure out how to put it into the current constraints. Exactly, exactly. And yeah. it also gives you like a like a window into the future of like, here's what it could be. And it gets people really excited about it and like bought into the idea of like, oh yeah, this is a problem I want to go solve because I can see how awesome this will be if I go solve the problem. Yeah, well, and it's a it's a excellent idea to, to put them side by side, stack up the quality of others, uh, you know, the acuity right next to the one, you know, it's like buying a TV. Yeah, If you're exactly. just looking at like three different houses, you're like, I don't know, maybe they're the same, maybe it has better resolution, but you go to the store and you, they're all stacked up next to each other and like, that is a good image right there. Yeah, yeah. Some of this was actually for like leadership demos um, for like like the engineering leadership to be like, which problem do we want to solve first? Or like, which like where do you want to have the most money um, to, get, to go into solving some of these problems? That was another, so, another use case for that. So two questions for your time at uh, Facebook. So mm -hmm. obviously you're in the fighter community. You got to enjoy all the uh, benefits and, uh, and downsides, honestly, about being in the fighter community. We talked offline about, you know, weather days and, and having to go out there when you know full well that you're just going to come back inside after wasting an hour of your time. And, you know, and you may have been in the same spot, you know, you're a military member and you think like, man, private sector doesn't do this kind of stuff. Private sector gets it, you know, and, and it's easy to do the grass is always greener. So obviously you were at Facebook and I'm not asking you to bash anybody, but what was the community like as compared to the fighter community that you knew? And then what was it like, um, you know, was the grass greener, you know, relative to your experiences? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. It's something like, I thought about a lot. Um, in terms of the community, that was, ironically, for a social media company, uh, that was actually one of the things that I had the most frustrations with. Maybe because my team is like really engineering heavy, but I felt like socially it was difficult. Granted, this was this was you know a year and a half into COVID, and like a lot of people were working from home. Um, but I would go into the office pretty much every day, and I was like the only person in the office, and like I didn't really have a good social group um, of coworkers. Um, I would I literally go in the office every day and like sit on Zoom meetings uh, in, in like in a conference room by myself because everybody else was working from home. Um, and I don't know if that was like a reflection of like my specific team that was like super engineering heavy, uh, like research heavy or like Facebook in general, or just like a sign of the times. Cause I feel like a lot of the folks that had been there for a lot longer than I had, like pre COVID had a lot of really good social groups that they were able to keep in touch with through instant messaging, like our internal messaging tools and things like that. But if you didn't already have those relationships, it was really difficult to form new ones. Um, so I'm sure a lot of that was just like the situation, um, but but certainly like my situation was I, I felt socially not super connected with people really well. Um, and then as far as is the grass is the grass greener on your side, I the way that I put it to people is like my time in the military, probably some of the like best most rewarding like incredible experiences I will ever get to have in my life. And also probably some of the crappiest, like, <laughs> like, man, this sucks. Like the, the range is really high, right? Um, civilian life, that range is a lot smaller. Like it's a lot more in the middle. So like 
my best days are pretty damn good. My worst days are not that bad. Um, it's like, it's kind of somewhere in the middle. They're like the employee, like the perks of working at a, like a big tech company like Facebook are like kind of insane. Like if you watch like Silicon Valley, it's like, it, you, it feels like you're walking into an episode of Silicon Valley like every day. Like there's three free meals a day of like, sh- like multiple chefs, like cooking, like buffet. Like we had like, like smoked salmon in the morning for breakfast, uh, like a full on salad bar, like, like, like every snacko's dream. Right. Yeah. Um, my, my work-life balance was like really good. I could work basically whatever hours I wanted to, as long as my stuff was getting done, I could work from whatever, like, Oh, you want to go like hang out in like Whistler for a week to go skiing and like, like work on your laptop, you know, in between runs. Like, sure. You can do that. I have taken a call from a ski lift before. Like, absolutely. <laughs> um, on the other hand, like, uh, it wasn't nearly as meaningful as anything that I did in the air force. Like I remember, I'll never forget this day. There was, there's some flight that I had at Osan. I can't remember exactly what the flight was, but like we were doing some, probably some North Korea scenario or whatever. Like it went pretty well. Like everyone like shot their missiles, like dropped their bombs on target. Like it was like, we did the fighter pilot thing and it felt awesome. And I remember walking out of the squadron and it was like sunset and like second go is like starting up. And it was like, it was like dead quiet on the ramp. And then like one jet turns on and another jet turns on and like the sun starts going down and you're like, this is exactly where I want to be. Like, this is awesome. Like I am doing fighter pilot stuff in a place that needs fighter pilots. And like the mission is right there. Like North Korea is 36 miles that way. And we are, we are literally ready to go tonight. And I don't think there's anything in the civilian world that can replicate that feeling. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And I think for everybody who, who hasn't had the opportunity to be exposed to the fighter community as much, like, you know, you travel a lot, you work a lot. And, you know, I think there's probably some like psychological explanation where like when the lows are low, those highs don't even have to be as high, but man, they, they sure feel pretty high. Uh, just because the disparity between the two, you know, that Delta, um, but the, in a fighter squadron, you go wherever you could go to deploy in, in the desert. You could go to Malaysia. You could, you know, wherever you go, 30 of your friends are coming with you. You know, you have like, it's just all your friends, you know? And, and sadly that is, that is not common really outside the fighter community, you know, like heavies show up with three, five, six friends, you know, and in non op side officers, it's the commander, the captain or lieutenant, and then like a sea of enlisted, you know, people that they don't really hang out with as much because they're technically their supervisor where a fighter squadron is just like 30 bros, you know, you're, you're probably within like three to five years of each other in your time in the air force. So it's, it's sad that you kind of didn't get that experience. And it, and it sounds like it may be, like you said, just kind of that time that you kind of got, you got there and it, it may not have been as, um, you know, as true to what previously was experienced. Yeah. One, uh, the, one other question. Flip, oh, go ahead. The, the, the flip side of that is like in the military, you do move like all the time. And like, yeah. I think my wife and I were talking about this the other day. Like, I think since college, we haven't lived in one place for more than two years. Um, and like we, so we bought this house this summer 
you can see like there's still like posters like we haven't like put up on the walls and boxes and stuff back there and i th and part of it honestly is like this feeling of like oh god we're gonna move in like a year and a half right like <laughs> why even bother taking stuff out of boxes because we're just gonna move again and we're like no like like we're gonna be here for a while <laughs> yeah which is great that you get to do that i mean we have yeah but breaking out of the mentality is actually kind of difficult oh yeah well and, and you're like you know right now you're you know or people looking to buy a house and it's like oh gosh well in three years and it's like this is your house. This isn't, you know, this isn't a short-term investment. This is like, yeah. a, but it, you know, military, it's hard to see it as anything, but uh, yeah, we had, we went, you know, Japan then we came back to the States and South Carolina. Cause I was at McIntyre um, after uh, Japan. So we were right down the road probably. Oh but, yeah. Uh, and, um, but yeah, we had a, uh, turns out we didn't even know this last move, our fourth move, the, we still not had uh, broke the tape that taped it to leave Japan. <laughs> and uh, sure enough, it was a microwave that we haven't used in like seven years. It's like, we probably don't need that anymore. Nice, nice. Yeah, the different color, like moving stickers, right? Like exactly. the inventory <laughs> numbers that are like still all over everything. Yeah, same same thing when you're moving uh, not with the military or is that different? Uh, that's an interesting story, actually. Uh, when, we, when we moved from San Francisco to Seattle, uh, we just hired kind of whoever, right? Like just some local moving company. And they showed up and just started like throwing stuff into boxes, like hauling it out. And we're like, where's like, where's the inventory sheet? Like, like stickers and stuff. Right. And they're like, oh yeah, yeah, we don't do that. We just like take a video walkthrough of your place and uh, like, we'll figure it out on the back end. And we're like, what? <laughs> and like, like sure enough, like they, you know, broke a bunch of stuff, like standard stuff. Right. But like, dude, moving is expensive if the military is not paying for it. And when you're not paying like full coverage insurance or whatever it is, like, They'll break a bunch of your stuff and they're not going to care. Uh, so that was that lesson learned. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that's good to know, you know, cause everybody bags on like, oh, the military, you know, moving me, but it sounds like at, at least if, if nothing else, it's, it's been tested a lot. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The, uh, one other thing I was going to ask about, uh, working at, uh, Facebook and maybe at, uh, SpaceX, you kind of experienced some, something similar, but my understanding is, you know, in the military, everything is like fill up all the white space. Like my day should be completely mm. full of activities. Mm. And what I've been told, again, please correct me, is that there's actually a lot of times where there's like intentional white space for just kind of thinking and, you know, working through problem sets where you can actually try to innovate and, and come up with new ideas rather than just filling your entire day. Yeah, it really depends on your role. So like if you're a manager, your, your day is probably going to be like filled with meetings. If you're some sort of like technical lead, where you're like coordinating a whole bunch of different efforts, you're probably going to be like talking with people and like making that, making sure that communication is like flowing properly. But if you're what's called an IC, an individual contributor, um, which is like, like the programmer, right? Like the engineer, like the guy that's like the guy or gal that's like actually like doing the thing, not like communicating the thing out and doing the coordination, but like actually doing the, the design work, the engineering work, the, the programming work, whatever it is. Um, your, your calendar is full of a lot of white space to like just get your work done. Um, and, and part of it is like, you do need to be a little bit productive and like push back on things. Like I get invited to like tons of meetings and tons of reviews that like, that are, they're very much optional. It's like, it, it's more of like an FYI. It's like, hey, this meeting's happening. If this is relevant to you, you're welcome to attend and like listen in or whatever. Um, but if it's not, like you're encouraged to protect your time and have time to like get your stuff done. And generally speaking, um, certainly at like major tech companies, 
nobody is tracking your hours. Nobody cares when you're working, as long as you're you know available for like you know, weekly meetings, stand ups, like that sort of thing, or like for the rest of your team. Um, outside of that, it's like work from whenever, work whenever you want. The uh, it's it's very much like you know we always talk in the fire community about like effects based planning. It's like what do we want the end results, like end state to look like? And like, what, let's work backwards from there to like figure out how we're going to get there. Very much the same mentality, honestly. They just use different words around it. It's just like, deliver this end product, complete this ticket, to like have this capability. I don't really care how you implement it. I don't care when you're implementing it. Like, just go do the thing. Um, and nobody's nobody's tracking your time. Nobody's tracking your hours, which is, which is really, really nice. If you want to like, go get a workout in the middle of the day, if you got a doctor's appointment in the middle of the day, like, as long as you're not missing like some important meeting where you're like communicating information out or getting information like flowing back in that's going to affect your work, nobody cares. Yeah, man, that's pretty nice because I it's feel really like awesome. sometimes, yeah, I feel sometimes it's it's almost like either I feel the need I have to sit at work because if I'm not at work, I must, you know, be uh, not good at my job yeah. or other people feel they need to fill your work day up. It's like, well, you're here, you know, why not, why not get a couple meetings? And it's like, yeah. Well, do we need a couple meetings? Yeah, but exactly. The uh, well, any parting shots on kind of VR AR stuff that I missed before we move on to the SpaceX side of things? Um, oh, I think one thing I was going to bring up and, and totally forgot was uh, like the stuff that Red Six is doing is really oh. interesting. Like the virtual like BFM target kind of thing. Um, I haven't used the technology, right? So I, I can't speak to like firsthand experience. But my my gut impression is that. If you can figure out the ergonomics of it and not make it this like 10 pound thing that's cantilevered off your head and you're going to give everyone even more back problems than they already have. Um, yeah. If you can figure out that part of it, uh, I think it's a fantastic technology because, man, the first time I merged with an F-15, I was like, this thing is way bigger than a Viper and like does <laughs> not move like a Viper at all. Um, I got to BFM like Eurofighters, and, like F-35s and a whole bunch of other like, you know, these... Um, uh, dissimilar kind of adversaries. And man, the training that you get at fighting a dissimilar adversary is um, there's something that you just can't replicate with a Viper. Just the cues that you see, um, the way that a different airplane moves in the sky, um, so different than, than fighting even like a, a thrust limited or an AOA limited Viper or something like that. Um, and so, yeah, I think that that technology of being able to of, of it being able to BFM somebody else uh, that's not actually out there is super cool. Not to mention, like, man, the number of like single wingman instrument sorties that I flew in Korea. <laughs> uh, like, like I got the name Cowboy on a on a single single uh, ship instrument sorty as a wingman, trying to like uh, trying to you know trying to actually be tactical and trying to do stuff and, and failing. Uh, miserably, uh, as a, you know, 69 hour ringman in Korea. Um, and, uh, if I could actually go out there with like a VR headset and BFM somebody else, and, and I didn't need to have an instructor in the other plane and maybe like they could even come back and like, just review my lines with me, right? Like they don't even have to fly a sortie. Like maybe an instructor can fly a sortie in the morning and then do like a quick one hour, 45 minute debrief with like another student that flew a single ship BFM story with an AR headset and then just go review their lines with them and be like, hey, like, look at that, look at that, look at that, and then and then bounce. Like, that sounds like an awesome use of that that wingman's time, right? Um, and that instructor's time as well. 
Well, and, and I agree. I mean, we've we've seen what Red Six is working on, and you hear that Red Six? We'd be happy to have you guys on. Anybody from the team? Uh, but yeah, we. I have so many questions. I mean, I think about it because right now we already have a Jamex, so a joint helmet mounted yep. queuing system. So we already have a way that the jet provides us information looking out the window. There's a way to splice into that or, you know, I'm going to say non-scientific things, but, uh, you know, a way to kind of interface with that. Um, but my questions are like, where's the computing? Cause it's not hosted on the jet, you know, like yeah. you could, you could have your iPhone in your pocket and probably do a better job computing it. Um, but yeah, there's, there's so many questions that I have or like, how does the simulation, uh, like maneuver, you know, it's BFM. Mm -hmm. Like I make an error. Is it going to punish my error? Is it just this yeah. like grape that's out there? So yeah, I, I would love to talk, talk with them because as a, as an end user, there's so many variables that we probably think about in these consider with, you know, with our background versus someone who's like, Oh cool. Yeah. Augmented reality flying around. It's like, Oh yeah, man, there's so much more to it. Yeah. Um, you know, what actually I just thought of is a uh, uh, seed and like Sam's actually flying in the air. Like, yeah. can you imagine like doing a last ditch against a missile that's actually coming at you? Oh, uh, <laughs> I remember, I remember my, uh, my patch at Luke and he was like, we were talking about doing like, you know, evasive maneuvers and whatever for, for, for Sam's. And he's like, you guys realize how quickly a, a missile is like, like an SA-2 is actually like flying at you. And he grabs like a, he grabs a marker off the board and just like chucks it at a wingman. Like that's sitting in the audience is like, that's about how fast it's moving. Like that's about how much time you've got to react to it. Um, and I was like, oh yeah, okay. That's a, that's a good, good sense of like how quickly you gotta, you gotta think about these things to be able to look out, out the window and like actually see that telephone pole come at you would be, would be pretty wild. When you think, you know, not to get into any sort of, you know, gray area here with yeah, classification, yeah. but you look, you look out the window and now I need to pick it up a certain distance away to be able to do something actionable, yep. actionable about it. And it's like, am I even going to be able to like visibly see it? You know, yeah. like there's, there's so many questions out there that, you know, the SIM is, is helpful with that. But a lot of the, a lot of things are not bagging on the SIMs or expensive SIMs. The, a lot of it is like generics, like generically, mm -hmm. it'll look like this, you know, but mm -hmm. it's not like this specific missile will do exactly that. Mm -hmm. um, well, awesome. Well, uh, so SpaceX, so yeah. uh, Starlink, can you explain, because I'm not even going to try, uh, what Starlink does uh, to provide, like what is it specifically and what is it providing to people? Yeah, absolutely. So Starlink is the uh, largest satellite constellation um, that anyone's ever made. Uh, we currently have roughly 3,000 satellites uh, orbiting in, in low Earth orbit. I think they're like 100 something miles up. Um, and uh, eventually the goal, I think, is to get to like 30,000 satellites orbiting up there. It's a lot of satellites. And the idea is that we're going to be able to, well, we currently can provide internet anywhere on the planet, like roughly 100 megabit per second, which is like, like it's slower than what you're going to get from cable internet or whatever, but it's a heck of a lot better than existing satellite internet um, at like 30 millisecond-ish latencies. And the, the latency is a really important thing to do this kind of real-time video, you know, kind of communication. Um, with a traditional satellite-based internet that's out there right now, um, they are operating what's called geostationary orbit, which is at something like 25,000 miles up or something like that. Um, and what that means is it takes radio waves almost a quarter second to go from you up to satellite and then back down to Earth again, like to do that relay. And a quarter second is a really long time to be able to try to do this like 
real-time video, you know, even, even like a phone call. Um, when you're operating in low Earth orbit, you completely eliminate uh, the, that latency problem. It is actually faster to take a signal uh, on the ground, bounce it up to a, to a Starlink satellite, communicate it over to another Starlink satellite, and then bounce it back down to the ground than it is to go through a fiber uh, cable running on the ground. And the reason for that is because the speed of light in a vacuum is actually faster than the speed of light through a fiber optic cable. Uh, and sorry, and sorry, I got ahead of myself a little bit. Um, the current generation of Starlink satellites, the way that they work is that there's a ground station. Uh, we've got hundreds, I forget exactly how many ground stations we have, um, that, that have basically a fiber internet connection and they send a signal up to a Starlink satellite and then that Starlink satellite will then beam that signal around to an area on the ground. What that means though is that this, the satellite has to be able to see the ground station and the user on the ground. It's essentially like a, like a, a bounce, a relay. we call it a bent pipe. Um, there's lots of areas around the world where you're not gonna be able to have a ground station in view. Think of the middle of the Pacific Ocean, right? Um, you're not gonna stick a ground station in the middle of the Pacific. And so what we've done is we started putting uh, what we call space lasers, literally lasers on our satellites that can communicate with each other. And they form a mesh network throughout the entire Starlink architecture and allows satellites to talk to each other. And a satellite that is not in view of a ground station can now uh, get a, a, a backhaul link through the laser net, uh, laser connectivity down to a satellite that does see a ground station and it can communicate through that network. Um, and sorry, that was the, the part that I was getting to with, it's now faster over very long distances to actually communicate via the laser network in space than it is to communicate via fiber optic or, or copper cables on the ground because the speed of light in the vacuum is actually faster than the speed of light through, through copper or through fiber. Um, and so now because of this laser network um, that we are, we're slowly developing, it's not completely in place yet. Um, and we're, we're launching more and more satellites that have the lasers on them. Um, we were able to provide internet anywhere on the planet. We have internet currently at like McMurdo Station in, in Antarctica. They can get 100 megabit per second uh, full on like FaceTiming your relatives, you know, on the South Pole. Um, and hypothetically, we could, you know, do cruise ships, airliners, like whatever else you can think of, literally anywhere on the planet. That's amazing. I mean, yeah. it's, uh, you know, all these you know, SpaceX and, and all these ideas that they, that are, you know, I guess postulated and it's like, Hey, we could do this. And then they become reality and you're like, Ooh, this is some wild tech out there. Yeah. Uh, so, and maybe this is, maybe I'm thinking of it incorrectly. Cause I assume it's, it's just radio frequencies mm -hmm. or it's radio waves. So mm -hmm. really this is, it's not just internet. Like theoretically it could be uh, maybe not cell phone, but some sort of variation on that. Like you can now communicate in any radio frequency as long as it can be transmitted across. So uh, interesting you said cell phones. Um, SpaceX actually just signed a deal with T-Mobile uh, to provide um, essentially basic connectivity services like anywhere in the world. So if you are middle of nowhere, Montana, there's like there's no cell phone signal out there you would be able to connect to a Starlink satellite and probably not voice. I, I don't know what like the data rates are, but like probably like a text if you need to send like an emergency, like, hey, I am lost or, or whatever. Um, that basic kind of cellular communication and, and we're, being, we're, we're gonna be able to provide that, that kind of, um, I don't wanna say internet service, but certainly some sort of 
communication services uh, to existing cell phone handsets. Because you're right, it is a um, it is essentially just a, a an RF antenna. Now, the antennas, of course, are like really specialized to like certain frequencies, and we've optimized it to talk to the Starlink user terminals and not like a cell phone. Um, and so there's some special stuff we got to do to like be able to talk to a cell phone. Um, so you can't just like have it work with like you know like a UHF radio or, or whatever. Um, if they are they are operating on certain bands, but ultimately yes, it's just it's just RF. And uh, so another question. Again, I'm I'm way out of my depth, so uh, you're gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna need your help here. Yeah, no worries. Uh, no worries. But the uh, so now we we're talking about which this isn't new, but we you know we talk about HF, which you know has its benefits and a VHF, mm-hmm. and so very high frequencies, ultra high frequencies. So how does the and I think this is the correct word, but uh, the attenuation between like hey we're in space now we're passing this information to the ground. Mm-hmm. Are there any like distance issues or weather issues or anything like that that changes the ability for it to transmit or, or the computers have to dope that out? Yeah, um, I don't know. So my background is like not electrical stuff, electrical engineering and on RF stuff. But um, my understanding is basically we picked frequency bands to communicate over that like are like are not going to get attenuated by you know weather, rain, clouds, like that sort of stuff. Like it's, it's um, transparent to water vapor. Um, and it's like the right frequencies to be able to have the right bandwidth requirements and the right like look angles to be able to like service like a spot on the ground. Um, not, definitely not an RFD by, by any means, but um, certainly that's a lot of what the electrical engineers are doing is like figuring out which frequencies to to use to like communicate with the user terminals and, and the the antennas and the user terminals and the gateway sites are all. Um, they all use like very specific frequencies and very like custom antennas to, to be able to like make work. So how does it work when you're, uh, so we've now got these satellites. You said how, how many is the like end state? Uh, I think it's like 30,000. It's, it's a lot. Yeah. So now we have, what is that? And I don't know if we, you can talk about this or if this is proprietary, mm-hmm. but what does that mesh or over the globe look like? Like, is this a, a, kind of encompasses the entire globe? Like at all times, there are satellites that are all parts of the globe? I think that's the goal is like anywhere on the planet is like you'll have a couple of satellites in view at all times um, yeah, so, to be able to service that. So kind of like a GPS where, you yeah. know, like you're you're flying like a GPS aircraft and you're like, hey, I'm probably going to see seven-ish, you know, four, six uh, satellites at any one time so I can then be able to navigate off of them or transfer information or anything like that. Yeah, the difference between GPS and like what we're trying to do is GPS is in a much higher orbit, right? So like GPS is at like, I don't know, six or 8,000 miles up or something like that. Like it's not quite geo, but it's, it's pretty far up there. And so because it's so much further up there, each satellite has can see much more of the Earth at any given time. So I think there's only like 24 GPS satellites or something up there. Because we're so much lower to the ground, and because the antennas are like so much more focused under a specific spot on the ground, we need a lot more satellites to be able to cover the whole planet. So that's why it's that's why there's so many. Yeah, and then I mean, because again, geography major, but because we're uh, they're so much lower. I mean, they've got to be cooking across the ground. Like they've got to be traveling rather fast to stay in that lower altitude orbit. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, it's. Speed in space is a little bit complicated, so uh, I am going to vastly oversimplify what's happening here. Um, but <laughs> essentially, from from any given spot on the ground, yeah, like essentially, you're just 
you're watching the satellite and it's like doing that. I don't know if you've ever seen like how quickly the International Space Station, like, I don't know if you've ever seen the International Space Station from space, from, from the ground. I, yeah. yeah. It's it's about that fast. Like it's in, it's in view for like a couple of minutes, right? And so I think one of the, again, not like an Earth engineer by any means, but I think one of the challenges is actually like the user terminal on the ground has to continuously like change which satellite it's talking to, like while you're on a FaceTime call, right? And like exactly. not have any hiccups as it's like changing which satellite it's talking to. So like the engineering that goes into that is, is pretty wild. Well, and that, and that was kind of what I was thinking is like, this is not like one Starlink satellite communicating with one ground station over a period of time. It's like bouncing from one to the next to the next. It'd be like, yeah. make, you know, I imagine it'd be like being on a, in an airplane super low and your cell phone's just jumping from like cell phone tower to cell phone tower, cell phone tower. Yeah. You rip across yeah. The ground. That's, that's exactly like what the analogy would be. And, and the network guys are like just super smart and just figured out a way to be able to like make that work really seamlessly, which is, which is kind of magic. I, I will say, so like one of the, one of the things I've always admired about SpaceX and like, I, I think, I think when I was in college, like if I, if I hadn't gone to ROTC, I probably would have gone to work for SpaceX like early in my career. Like I've always admired the company and kind of what they what they've done. One of the one of the reasons for that is SpaceX kind of starts at the limits of physics and then works backwards to solve the engineering problems. It's like they take a first principles approach to everything. Like there's nothing inherently physically impossible about having 30,000 satellites providing it anywhere on the world and like having an antenna that can like switch between satellites like very quickly. Like from a physics point of view, it's just RF, right? It's antennas, it's, it's amplifiers, it's, you know, communication infrastructure. The engineering is insane. Like there's a lot of engineering challenges that go into that, but that's solvable. Like SpaceX goes like, let's solve the, let's take really smart dudes and guys and gals, um, solve the engineering problem. Uh, and, and, and they're not, worried about like let's go all the way up to physics like nothing is impossible unless you know physics says it's it's impossible which is which is something really really that i like really admire about it um i think one of the you talk about innovation one of the cool things that i've learned recently is um uh starship which is their next generation uh rocket like after falcon 9 um it uses it's made out of steel which is really weird like no one makes aerospace things out of steel. Like imagine making a Viper out of steel, right? Like it's aluminum and titanium. Yeah. Like everything in aerospace is aluminum and titanium. Why? Because yeah. the strength, strength to weight ratio, right? Like you need things to be as light as possible and as strong as possible. So of course you're going to use aluminum and titanium where it makes the most sense. Turns out aluminum and titanium, they're really hard to manufacture. Like welding titanium is insane. Titanium is also insanely expensive. Um, really, really amazing. Like thermal properties, strength properties, all that sort of stuff. That's why we use it. It's also insanely expensive and it's insanely difficult to work with. Um, aluminum has really crappy like thermal characteristics. Um, and for, and for, a, for a spaceship that's like going up into space and re-entering uh, the atmosphere like constantly, uh, it's, it's just not an ideal thing to work with. Steel is, has great thermal properties. It's really easy, like relatively easy to weld compared to other materials. And um, it's really freaking cheap, right? And, and one of the things that SpaceX really prides itself on is is constant uh, repetitions. Um, we talked, you know, earlier about pilot training. Pilot training is all about repetitions. Like flying a jet is all about repetition. Going into space is all about repetitions. Figuring out how to make satellites, like thirty thousand satellites that can all communicate with each other and have these laser links that all talk to each other, it's all about repetitions. Having um, 
you know, that's the largest rocket ever built. It's all about repetitions. And so if you can optimize for manufacturability and, and cost per unit, then you can make 30,000 of something. Then you can make, like, you're not afraid to like launch and test a rocket and, and you're worried it's going to crash um, because you're just going to make a new one in like a week. Like, not a big deal. <laughs> it's relatively cheap. Like, um, they've stopped doing a lot of um, test flights recently, but for a while, like, they were just like launching and crashing the Starship like prototypes all the time because it was such good test data. Like, the best, the best thing you can do is like launch it, see what happens, see what fails. It breaks, fix it, go launch it again. Like, the best testing you can do, the best way to learn is just to go do the thing, right? And the only way you can do that is having something that's cheap and easy to manufacture. And that's that's what SpaceX like really, really prides itself on is um, getting getting those reps. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I've I got an opportunity to hear kind of Elon Musk talk at uh, AFA, you know, it was, it oh, was cool. like a massive, it was a room with thousands of people. So it's not like it was some uh, special treat for me or anything, but, uh, but his perspective, like you said, like if physics allows, then like we just need to find a solution. But one of the things is that they, he, he pretty much attempted to solve the thing that no one else tried before. You know, they were yeah. like a Saturn V rocket, single use, just like a whole lot of oomph. And then we'll just spend thousands and thousands of hours and, you know, millions of dollars building another where it's now, like you said, like make it re- reproducible, make it able to be used multiple times. And now you solve so much of the, the consumption cost of trying to yeah. do all this stuff. So yeah. it's, it's so impressive. It's just, it's amazing that that stuff's happening out there. There's a, there's a cool, um, we call it the Elon algorithm. We actually sent out an email to the whole company like a couple of years ago and it's sort of like become immortalized in like SpaceX history. Actually, when I, when I walk into my office, like there's a big poster of the algorithm up on the wall and it's, it's this five-step process that he uses whenever he actually wants to like make, basically make a process better. Um, the steps are, uh, I don't have this memorized, I've got this up on the screen next to me, but it's, um, you start by making the requirements less dumb. So like, like a lot of times, like you'll look at something and you're like, why are we doing this? And sometimes people say like, oh, well, the blah, blah, blah department said we needed to do this. Departments don't make rules, like people make rules or like regulations or instructions or whatever. And so go find that person that wrote that thing and figure out like what their intent was. And half the time you're going to find that it's like the intent was miscommunicated when the step was actually like written down. And they're like, oh, we don't actually need to do that. Like, this is what the intent was. And it got misconstrued in this other thing, right? So like, figure out if your requirements are, are dumb to start with. Like, well, why, why are you doing the thing that you're doing? Um, try to delete this, the, the part or the process. So like, after you've like, kind of taken out all the dumb things, um, figure out like, what's still necessary. Uh, great example of this is like, um, a lot of the things that we do at SpaceX when like we're building uh, satellites, work, for example, uh, we don't do it in the clean room. Like you always think about like the bunny suits, or, like the you know the, the white you know, things you gotta like get like go through the air shower or whatever to like remove all the particles. We've actually removed the entire clean room step because we build satellites so quickly that there isn't even time for contaminants to like get on the satellite. Like like that's how fast we can build a satellite. It's like like matter of like hours it's it's wild how quickly the satellite factory works um that's crazy and so we're like wait why are we why do we even have a clean room like we don't even need this anymore so like try to figure out like why your requirements exist in the first place and delete things that don't need to happen um one of the engineers i work with he always says the best part is no part 
if you can delete the thing entirely, great. Like design around it, make the process better uh, by just by just taking things out. Um, then the third step is to simplify or optimize. So optimization, like one, like the most common error is optimizing something that shouldn't exist in the first place. Um, so once you've once you've made your requirements less dumb and you've deleted all the non-necessary things, that's when you start to optimize and you try to optimize for cost, mass, uh, producibility, like manufacturability, like assembly, like whatever it is. Um, once you've then optimized your design, that's when you start to accelerate. That's when you start to get all the repetitions in. So you don't start to like speed up that production line and start to get all those repetitions until you've done those first three steps. Um, and, and like now is when you start, should start going faster. And then the very last step is automation. Um, it's, it's important that automation happens after all of these things because the human in the loop is gonna, is gonna be able to actually like solve, uh, see a lot of things that a computer is not gonna be able to do for you. And it's only when it's like, you're running up to the limits of like human ability um, that you start getting a computer in the loop or like when a computer, computers are really, really great at like, um, you know, like staring at a piece of data, like waiting for, for an alarm kind of thing. Like something like you get, you try to get a, a human just like staring at a, you know, a data stream and like looking for, for something like that's something you want to automate, right? Or like the same thing over and over again, like trying to like reproduce some sort of like step in, a, in an assembly process. That's something that like a computer or an automated process is really good at. But you're not going to automate until you've done all of the other things in the process. And like doing all those things in order, like that's the Elon algorithm that, that I think the company is like, uh, one of the things that the company has really embodied at every step of the way and, and, and part of the secret sauce of the company. That's a, well, that's great. And I think when you kind of explained that, I was like, man, I think the air force would be like 10% of what it is today <laughs> if they embodied this. Cause you think, I think, you know, and, and it's, it's apparent that it's obviously well thought out because you look at it and it, and when you explain it, it makes total sense. Like, Hey, don't have a computer help you optimize or help you do something that doesn't even need to be there in the first place. You know, like yeah. if you bring in the computer too early, you're just going to optimize for things like it already said that shouldn't be there in the first place. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's uh that's great. And I think again, like not trying to compare previous jobs with mm -hmm. current job, but how do you, how do you like, you know, obviously it hasn't been a long time, but how do you like being there and community and all that? Yeah. Um, so uh, Elon is very like famously like very uh, in the office mentality, which is I think kind of counter to like a lot of tech companies. Um, what I always said when I was at Meta and sort of frustrated with the like no one was in the office was I think people are going to start self-selecting into communities and workplaces um, that have different levels of like social in the office kind of requirements. Um, a lot of people at Facebook really liked the fact that they could work from home and just like code on their laptop all day, like sit and drink their coffee and like have their cats with them all the time and like never have to get out of their pajamas, right? You never see another human. Like people, yeah. some people absolutely love that. I cannot do that. Um, and and at all of Elon's companies, he's very much about like being in the office really increases productivity. Um, whether or not you agree with that, like that's, you know, whatever. Um, I've seen a lot of cases where that's been really helpful, where I've overheard conversations and about people talking about like some design that I was working on, like, oh, like this doesn't have this thing. And I was like, hey, are you talking about this thing? Like, actually, yes, it does. Like, here's a spec sheet. And like, we'll, we'll quickly like go talk about it. And they like 
like that was solved because I was in the office and like overheard that conversation and just the the camaraderie and like the environment. I personally really like going into the office every day, um, and uh, the the community has been a lot better for me personally. And this is like not a judgment call on on Facebook or anything like that. It's just like SpaceX has been a much better fit for me personally um, than than what I saw it at uh, at Facebook. So yeah, it's been really great. That the stuff that I work on is really inspiring. I just really love being back in aerospace um, and being around like hardware and, and, and rockets and uh, satellites and stuff all day. Like when I, when I get a chance, so I'm up in Seattle, the, the Starlink, um, Starlink office, main office is up in Seattle, but I do get a chance to get out of the, the main SpaceX office in Hawthorne pretty often. Uh, Hawthorne is just a neighborhood of LA. Um, and when you walk in there, like you see the like, dragon capsules that like the manned spacecraft capsule would fly like up in the ceiling like as soon as you walk in you see like raptor engines like being built like you see the falcon like rockets getting built like on the factory floor like literally literally the cafeteria is across the hallway from where the merlin engines for the falcon 9 are being made like there's a there's a metal 3d printer like 10 feet away from like where you go get your lunch uh, and it's it's so cool like to like just be there and like see all the stuff. Um, it's a really inspiring environment. Like everyone there is like super bought into the mission and, and being around that is, is really awesome. Yeah, you you talking about that? I mean, everybody who's not watching on the video, like you could see cowboy like light up <laughs> being and and I think one of the things that in cowboy, I know you kind of saw this uh, on the op side. So I was at uh, I was going to be a flight commander, which mm. in in an ops squadron, a flight commander is not the biggest deal ever. Uh, so they're like, oh, you've got to go to this like one week flight commander training course. And I was like, this is going to be a complete waste of my time. <laughs> and it was about 99% a complete waste of my time, sure. except for this one thing uh, where they brought in a bunch of squadron commanders to talk to us younger military people who are going to start leading people. Um, and they were talking about incentivizing. And uh, I was one, I was the only, uh, fighter pilot in the room. So the, the op side yeah. and they're talking about how, like, Hey, do we get, do we give days off? How do we, you know, how do mm. we incentivize people to work harder? And, uh, the maintenance squadron commander points at me and he goes, do you, he, he's talking to the room, but he's pointing at me. He goes, do you think he has a motivation problem? Like, do you think ops has a problem being motivated mm -hmm. and you don't like one, it's like it, it, you, you have a vested interest in being good at flying and landing airplanes. Yeah. Uh, and then, but what he was saying is like being too far removed from the operations, you forget what your objective is. You forget mm -hmm. what your goal is. So, and I think like you say, like, Hey, it's very much an at work mindset or a perspective is because you get those experiences and you don't even get to go, like you don't even go to lunch without realizing the gravity of what you're working on. Uh, so I think that's, it's funny, you're probably used to being at work more just because you were in the military, but then mm -hmm. also like it helps you kind of see the broader picture, see the mm -hmm. bigger thing than your cog in the big machine, uh, which I dig because I, you know, I mean, seeing jets and stuff is always cool, but I can only imagine what it's like walking around and being like, holy cow, look at this stuff. Yeah, I think I think that's really important for any job is, I mean, unless you're at like a 10 person startup, um, you're going to be a cog in a bigger machine. Um, and that's, that's by design. People specialize into certain roles. Like, you know, I'm 
I think I'm pretty decent at engineering. I'm pretty crappy at finance. I don't know how any of that stuff works, right? <laughs> like contracts, sales, that's not my jam. Somebody else is. And I'm really glad that they're good at their job so that they can do their thing and I can do my thing. That's why we specialize. Um, yeah. But it's easier. It's, it's easy when you specialize to at least drop into the picture. Um, so actually going back to the first company that I was at before I, uh, when I left the Air Force, uh, Scoop, the carpooling company, uh, we had a requirement that once a quarter, you had to take a carpool to work. Um, and we, we'd usually do it like a week. It's like, hey, sometime this week, you got to take at least one carpool. And to be able to see the end-to-end and use the application that we were developing end-to-end, understand how the scheduling flow works, what happens if somebody doesn't show up, how do you file a support ticket, like all these little things that if you're focusing on this one feature, you might lose track of the bigger picture. Um, the, the term in tech for this is, is called dog fooding. Um, it's eating your own dog food. Uh, like what you're producing is kind of where that comes from, I guess. Um, and uh, like at Scoop, we really encourage people to like to dog through the app as much as possible and just try it out. At Facebook, it was actually quite interesting. Um, everyone, everyone that worked in the Reality Labs division like got a free Oculus headset to like, I mean, to work on. Like you needed it uh, for work. Um, but surprisingly, few people would actually like go dog through some of the things that we were that we were developing. And there was. Like I remember there was one time where like I went and used an application, like a third party application that would that used our like object tracking um software that we were developing. And they like they had this weird like overlay, like interface thing that like sort of like superseded the built-in stuff that we had. And we're like, that's really weird. Like why are they kind of reinventing the wheel and like making it confusing for the end user because now there's like two different menus to like interact with this like one set of app like features and it made it like all the way to like release like to the end user and like, like went out to the public um in the state and like nobody on my team caught it until i like logged in one day and i was like doing something else entirely in that app like collecting data for something and i was like Hey, does anybody know about this weird menu that like this application is using and like nobody had seen it because nobody was like dog feeding this stuff um, it was, it was kind of weird. And like the, the, the project manager, uh, the overall like kind of head person for this team was encouraging people to use it, to stay engaged and like to stay motivated. And like, for, for whatever reason, people just weren't. And I think that led to a lot of like, um, like being a step removed from the end thing and like not seeing their overall impact of what you're doing and understanding the product end to end. And and like like you said, yeah, like you walk into the you know Hawthorne factory, uh, the SpaceX factory in LA, and you're like, like there's a rocket right there, there's a dragon right there, like there's a there's an engine like right there. Um, like that's that's what I'm doing is I'm 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 one little piece in this big machine, but like that thing can't go into space unless I'm doing my little part of it, and that's it's a pretty awesome way to stay motivated. Yeah, I agree, and I think. You know, again, there's probably a little more transferability, like, or trans, you know, I guess, between, you know, flying jets and, and appreciating machines and, and now what you're doing. Yeah. What would you say, uh, but I know I'm, we're getting long in the tooth, so I got one more question, then I'll let you go, I promise. Sure. Uh, so, again, as, as an outsider, you know, probably everybody in the audience doesn't know, we can assume what kind of the heaviest lift is when we're talking about putting 30,000 uh, satellites into space. But from your perspective, what is like? What is the heaviest lift or the most difficult thing that it's like? Man, that is a challenge to overcome. That's a good question. Um, 
hitting you with the brain buster. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> no, it's a good question. Um, I think the reason I'm having trouble answering that question actually is because because we iterate so much on our satellites. Like it, we're not putting thirty thousand of the same satellite into space. Because we're putting thirty thousand satellites into space, we launch like fifty-ish at a time, like per rocket. Like that's just how many we can fit into a Falcon. Um, every flight, every launch, we iterate and make something a little bit better because we learn. It's, it's all about those reps, right? We learn yeah. something on every launch, on every single satellite that we deploy, and everyone gets a little bit incrementally better. And so it's actually like not thirty thousand satellites in the space. It's like it's like thirty thousand different incremental versions. Now we're not actually changing everything on every single build, but you kind of get what I'm saying, right? It's like we're incrementally making steps to to solve each problem as we're hitting it. Um, actually, I think the biggest thing that we're we're running into right now is like um, just having enough lift capacity, and that's one of the reasons we're like making Starship is like the the more the more mass, the more volume that we can put into space per launch. It, the better the economics are going to be and the the faster cheaper better like we can get these things into space and so it's really just about timeline and like like iterating on those things i remember actually one of my um iff instructors i think uh it was an f15c dude and he was like i don't have a thousand hours in eagle i have one hour a thousand times and that's kind of what we're doing at spacex right it's like we don't have a constellation of thirty thousand satellites we have 30,000 individual like things that we're making better every time you do it. That's a great perspective. And I, th I think that's, it's universal too. You know, everybody should be striving to achieve and do everything better. You know, I, I don't know a single fighter pilot who's had a perfect sortie. Yeah, you know, and I, absolutely. I don't know, I don't know if, if there is a perfect sortie, you know, and I think, you know, SpaceX and, and all the people there are doing exactly that. Like everybody, every piece of that puzzle is striving for that perfection. And as long as you keep trying, like it's probably not going to get worse. Yeah, you know? exactly. So, well, Cowboy, I appreciate you uh, joining me on the show. It's, it's been uh, awesome because I'll be honest with you, you know, obviously I'm getting to chat with you as a bro, you know, another fighter pilot, but I just, you know, like, uh, it's like a fictional thing. You talk to someone, you're like, Oh, that person works at SpaceX. <laughs> actually works at SpaceX. Like, I don't know those people. So, so I appreciate you taking the time because I know you're doing uh, some amazing work out there. So, uh, so thank you. Yeah. I, I do appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, man. It's been, it's been great. Like the you know, flying fighters have been fantastic and getting to know like folks like you and Bender and, and all the other bros in the, in the community has been, has been awesome. And I'm really grateful that I've been able to stay in touch with everybody. Um, Cause I kind of felt like when that door closed on me, like through medical reasons, I was like, man, I could not, you know, I'm not a fighter pilot anymore, but like, you, you know, you're never, you're never not going to be a fighter pilot. Um, and, uh, being able to still stay connected with the community has been, uh, like really meaningful to me. So I appreciate you like reaching out and, uh, this has been great. Yeah, no. And you're, you're always a fighter pilot, you know, we, <laughs> we all learned, we all went through the same, you know, struggles and trials. So, so we appreciate, it's always good to see when fighter pilots go on to do some wild stuff like you're doing. So, uh, so I appreciate it as the, uh, current guy trying to learn a new airplane. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. But awesome. Thanks again, cowboy. I'll talk to you later. Yeah, absolutely. See you later. Bye everybody.
Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.